Good morning. <laughs> if you could open up your Bibles, please, and turn them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. How about we pray and ask the Lord's blessing? Lord, thank you for these songs that we have sung, these songs that have lifted up my heart even this morning. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Lord, I need you. Um, we need you this morning. Pray that as we hear your word, we can sing those words well this morning. And we have nothing else but you. All we have is Christ. So Lord, I thank you for this word that we are about to read. In your name, amen, amen. I wonder... Um, if I was to uh, go around passage today and ask the people in passage, um, is there something in the Bible that you know about? You know, some words or some story or something. Could you tell me something about the Bible? I'm sure some of them would tell me about Jesus. Hopefully, some would get Jesus. And some might tell me about Mary. I'm sure some would tell me about Mary. And some might even get a miracle there, like Jesus turning water into wine. Some might even tell me about a miracle. But if I was to ask some people in passage to tell me something about the Bible, I hope some of them would probably say the Ten Commandments. In fact, I bet some of them would probably say the Ten Commandments. And that's actually what we're going to go through this morning the Ten Commandments, because they're a central part of God's covenant with Moses, the Ten Commandments. Now, we're not going to go through each one. We're just going to look at it as an overview. But as I read the Ten Commandments to you, here's what I want you to think. When people hear these Ten Commandments, what is it they think they're there for? What do these Ten Commandments do? So as I read these Ten Commandments, I want you to think about that. What would people think as they read these Ten Commandments? What are they for? What do they do? Exodus 20, we're going to read the Ten Commandments together. Exodus 20, verse 1. This is God's Word. Never forget that as I read. This is God's Word. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them to, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work 
That's good news. There's a day not to do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother and your days will be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbors. Those are the Ten Commandments. Before I came to study it this week, I hadn't read them for a long time. What do people think when they think of the Ten Commandments? Some people, when they think of the Ten Commandments, believe that if I do the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments are like the key into the doorway of heaven. So all I have to do is try and keep the Ten Commandments, and that's my way into heaven. Some people, even Christians, look at these Ten Commandments and say, well, if I do these Ten Commandments, and if I do them really well, and if I try with all my heart to do them really well, then God is going to love me. That's the key in order to make sure that God loves me. Some people look at the Ten Commandments and think, that's just a really good and moral way to live. No, I don't believe you're God. I don't believe you're Jesus. But I think the Ten Commandments are actually pretty good. And if we lived it in accordance with society, it would work okay. And it's really a smart way to live. Now, there's been a song going around in our household this last week. It's a song uh, called Smart Ways to Live. And they're already singing it now. This song has been going, do you have songs like that in your house? They just go over and over and over again, and usually people don't know all the words, so it drives even more nuts. This, this song, Smart Ways to Live, it is so popular on social media, millions and millions of listens, all that kind of stuff, and I'm going to read out to you, not sing out to you, some of the words to the song. Here are the words. Help an old lady cross the street, give the homeless something to eat, Give someone a compliment. Leave a note when you accidentally make a dent. Smart ways to live. So many smart ways to live. That's a really popular song right now. And, and, and what happens to us, I think, as we look at the Ten Commandments, as we look at the Ten Commandments, we just say, that's just a good, smart way to live. Do right, do good, list of moral rules, great. It's a smart way for us to live. If we only read the, read the Ten Commandments in those ways, then we miss what the Ten Commandments are all about. We forget what the Ten Commandments are all about. So here's what I'm going to do this morning as we overview the Ten Commandments. Here's what we're going to do. I want to help us not read them wrongly. 
And so what, I, what I'm going to do is highlight all the things that we tend to forget when we read the Ten Commandments. The first thing that we tend to forget when we read these Ten Commandments is this. We forget the story behind the Ten Commandments. You see, if you just read the Ten Commandments as a bunch of little rules, some of us know, well, I shouldn't kill, I shouldn't commit adultery, I shouldn't steal. If we read it in that way, then sometimes what we do is we miss the big story behind it. We look at three or four and say, I'm going to live like that, but we miss the whole narrative behind the Ten Commandments that are informing them. You see, there is a story. And what is the story? It is the covenant story of the Bible. It's the covenant story that we have been going through. And the covenant story is a story of promises. At the heart of every covenant is promise. God's covenant with Adam, after Adam had failed. Do you know what I had done with Adam and Eve? I'd have killed them on the spot. See you later. You don't want me as a God. You really don't. If they had done it on the spot, dead, done, world, I'm going to leave you alone. But no, what God does after is God gives them a promise. And what promise does He give them? The greatest promise in all of Scripture, Genesis 3.15. Write it down, remember it. It is so key to understanding the Bible. It is this, the biggest promise in the Scriptures is Genesis 3.15, in which there is this promise that through the woman, there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. Here's the promise that runs right throughout the Bible. There is coming a serpent crusher. Even though they failed, God gave them a promise. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So the story continues. They were fruitful fruitful and multiplied. But what else multiplied? The sin on the earth multiplied. And there was a problem. God's people, every inclination of their heart was sinful. And so what did God do? God sent a flood. And so the promise of Genesis 3.15 is under threat now. Where is the serpent crusher going to come if God destroys all the earth? But God saves Noah and his family. And he not only saves Noah and his family, but what does he do? He gives them a promise. What's the promise? He puts the bow in the sky. And he says, never again, never again will I flood the earth like this. I was thinking this week, imagine the power of God. We get one night of rain, and we can't survive. The whole town is destroyed. One night, the power of God. He opens up the heavens, and we have no control. Unbelievable. But the bow in the sky, God makes a promise, says never again. And then it continues. God says to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. And they were fruitful and they multiplied. Except what happened? So did sin multiply with them. And then there was a threat to that promise of this serpent crusher who's to come because in the family line there was Sarah, but Sarah was barren and she had no child. And then so everybody's thinking as they read this account and this story, where's the serpent crusher going to come? Well, God is going to do a miracle. Sarah at 90 and Abraham at 100, they're going to have a baby and call him, he laughs, Isaac. Through Isaac and Jacob, the family line continues and God is making this nation because in the Abrahamic covenant, what did he do? Not only with the covenant with Adam, he made a promise. Not only with the covenant with Noah, he made a promise. But with the covenant with Abraham, he made a promise. I am going to give you a land. 
I am going to bless you, and I'm going to make you into a nation. Look at the stars in the sky. You're going to become a great nation. And just at the end of Genesis, in, in, in the last chapters of Genesis, we're told that the nation is 70 people. But then the family line comes under threat again because they're all put into slavery under Pharaoh and his people. What is God going to do? God is going to rescue his people. God is going to keep his promises and God is going to bring through that line a serpent crusher. And that is the story of the book of Exodus. That is the story that leads us to this point of the Ten Commandments. It is this, God rescued his people. Don't forget that story. Because as we read the Ten Commandments, just as smart ways to live or, or good rules for life, we forget the story. Look at the first verse of the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. God is not giving these commands to them, saying, so that I love you. God is saying, at the start of the commands, I've loved you, I've delivered you, I've rescued you. Now I want you to live for me. If we just read the Ten Commandments like a bunch of rules, we forget the story. The Ten Commandments begins with grace. I've rescued you. Let's not forget that. The second thing we forget in the Ten Commandments is the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Not just the story behind them, but what's the point in them? What God has done is this. God says, I have made you as a nation. He made the nation. I have rescued you as a nation. He rescued the nation. And now what does God want to do? He wants the nation to be holy. I've made you. I've rescued you. And now I want you to be holy. Here's what God wanted them to be. A different nation, a unique nation. What is holiness? That they might be set apart. That, that when the whole world would look at this nation, they would see them as this like bright, shining light on top of the hill, and all the nations would look at them and say, look at the way they behave. What is it about these people? They look so different. That's what God wanted his people to be. He gives them these Ten Commandments so that they would be a holy nation, a different nation, a set-apart nation for him. Look at it, Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. And these verses will tell us about the purpose of these Ten Commandments, why God gave them. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. It says this, While, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
in the Ten Commandments, what, God, what is God calling his people to be? A made nation, a rescue nation, and a holy nation. I want you to be a holy people. That was the reality in the old covenant, and not much has changed in the new covenant in this sense. Who are we who are in Christ? We are a rescued people. Never forget that. If you have trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you this morning, where you sit, you are rescued. You're rescued. But what are you called to be in response to that rescue? Holy. Devoted unto him. So that when people would look at you as a rescued person, they, and, and look at your behavior and just your way of life, not even just your words, just your way of life, the way you live, they would look at you as a city on a hill and say, there's something different about these people. That you would be a light to the world by the way you live your life a holy people. Here's what Peter says to God's rescued people. Listen to what Peter says to God's rescued people. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are a rescued people, but we're called to be a holy people. He writes again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He writes this of the church in the New Testament, of God's people. Here now, he writes this of us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, we are called to be holy, that we might proclaim his excellencies. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're called to be a holy people. This is the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Holy, holy, holy. The men on Wednesday nights, we've been studying this book together, Respectable Sins. It's been so challenging to study it together because there are sins in our lives. There are, there are the deep sins in our lives that we all know and that we're all ashamed of and you know you're battling against them, but there are these other sins in our lives that we say, you know what, it'll be grand. It's not actually that bad. Oh, we're, I've been telling the men and we've been talking together. We are at war. There's spiritual warfare going on. We cannot ignore that. There's a battle going on. On Sunday mornings, when you're getting here, there is a spiritual battle going on. Make no mistake about it. Satan does not like it that you are here that you are listening to the Word of God. We have a battle for our holiness that goes on. The Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to do that. The third thing we forget about these commandments is this. We forget the direction of the Ten Commandments. 
See, if we see the Ten Commandments as just a small little bunch of rules, we forget their direction. What do I mean by their direction? Well, the Ten Commandments, as you look at them together, they have a vertical direction and they have a horizontal direction. What do I mean by that? Their vertical direction is this. The first four commands are directed vertically towards God, telling you how you should love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no carved images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The first four commands are what? Vertically directed. Here's how you are to love the Lord your God. And the next six commandments, what's the direction of those? Those six commandments, they're directed horizontally toward doing what? Loving your neighbor. What's a good way to love your neighbor? Don't kill him. That's a good way to love your neighbor. Don't commit adultery against it. That's a good way to love your neighbor. So what it is, in, as you look at the scope of these Ten Commandments, not just, oh, well, I haven't killed anyone today, great. But the, but the, but the breadth of these Ten Commandments is this. I'm living my life vertically, and I'm living my life horizontally. And isn't that what we're all called to do? Isn't that how Jesus summarized the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. In some ways, Christianity is just basic, isn't it? I mean, hard. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, but but basic in that sense. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you have two jobs. I need to live in this direction, and I need to live in this direction. I need to live upward and outward, not inward. But the world says, live inward, live inward. You do you, you love you, live inward, live inward, live inward. And even when they're trying to live outward, it's so that they can get the praise for their inward glory. We can be guilty of that too. When when we go to work tomorrow morning, that's our job. Yes, your job is your job, but your actual job, the job behind the job is this. I'm going to live upward and I'm going to live outward. Holy Spirit, help me. And when you come in here on Sunday mornings, what's your job? Upward and outward, not inward. So, it's not about all my feelings. It's not about my warm fuzzies. It's about God and others. That's why I'm here, Him and others. That's the direction of the Ten Commandments. So, if we see it in just this simple way... Smart ways to live or whatever you want to call it. We miss the direction. The fourth thing we forget is this, the rest in the Ten Commandments. The rest in the Ten Commandments. There is this this hinge verse in these Ten Commandments, these ten words. The hinge verse is is the Sabbath, that in verse 8. And most scholars will recognize this as the hinge verse. It It is the longest commandment that is there. It is the commandment of rest. Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In other words, this is almost like the centerpiece of the Ten Commandments. It's the hinge verse in in this sense. It has a vertical dimension, and it also has a horizontal dimension. The vertical dimension is I'm resting toward the Lord. The horizontal dimension is people and myself are benefiting from this rest. It is the central and key commandment here. You know the way the covenants, they often had signs. Noah's sign was the bow in the sky. 
Abraham's covenant sign was circumcision. The covenant sign of the Mosaic covenant, Israel's covenant, the old covenant, there's tons of names for it, but the sign was this, the Sabbath. That was a sign to them and other people because it is so tempting to work all seven days of the week, especially in that time when food is scarce. When they rested, what were they doing? God, I'm, I'm trusting you with this day. I'm trusting you to provide this day. I'm going to rest because I know I need it, but I'm trusting you to provide for me for the rest of the week. If it's up to me, I'd work every single day. But what we're going to do is we're going to stop and we're going to rest. That was a theme throughout the whole covenant for God's people, this theme of rest. God, in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, what did He do? After six days of the creation of the world, what did He do on the seventh? He rested. And then He gave His people this command to rest. And then on the seventh year, when they got into the land, what were they to do? They were to leave the land on the seventh year, leave it rest, and trust in God's provision. This theme of rest. There's something inbuilt in us, inbuilt in us, I think, that we long and desire for rest. Who here this morning doesn't feel like they need rest? I mean, this, isn't, this is so easy. It's like low-hanging fruit. Every single one of us. Do you feel like you need rest from your work? Do you feel like you need rest from your parenting? Do you feel like you need rest from your life? We long for rest. And not just physical rest, but, but soul rest. And the world's solution to us, for us, is this. You want rest, here's what we have for you. Work 68 years, and then retirement's coming. Retirement is the promised land. That's where you'll get rest. Just keep on working and get to retirement and you'll get rest. Here's what I've seen. The grass isn't greener. Any, any retired people I've seen, they busy themselves with something else. And their soul is not fully rested or fully satisfied. I guarantee you, whenever you get there, have you ever wanted something, wanted something, wanted something, and then you get there and you're kind of like, this was rubbish. I don't want that so much. It always happens. We always think that the grass is greener. What we need is not physical rest. What we need is soul rest. Rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what the Sabbath points to. It points to the person of rest. Paul in Colossians, he writes these words, Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one judge you in regard to a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath day, a shadow it's going to give you some rest, a little bit of rest, a day off, great. But a shadow compared to the substance, the actual rest that is found in Christ. And through Christ, we get to that place of rest where I think we will actually work, but it won't be laborsome. 
Imagine working in that way. You know, they worked in the garden before the curse. Be a place of purpose and worth and blessing and rest. Have you trusted in the person of rest? Have you given your life over to the person of rest? Are you destined for the place of rest? Trust in him. Christian, are you looking for rest in things that just will not satisfy? Run to him. Turn to him. He will satisfy. That's the problem with reading the commandments is just a bunch of rules. Smart ways to live. We forget the rest. The fifth thing that we forget is the beauty. If you look at these commandments, this is just rules. Who likes rules? Nobody. If you come into a place, can you imagine if, if you came into this church and we just had a list of rules? Here's how you're to behave when you come in here. That feel welcoming and good? That feel beautiful? No. But God's word, it is beautiful. There is a beauty here behind this law because it's God's very word to us. Man, when me and Luana, when we first started, you know, I'm gonna say writing to each other, we didn't write to each other. Well, we did write long cards. I think we did, okay. I wrote long letters, yeah, yeah. Um, when you write and you see the words of the person you write, it's just a joy, isn't it? That you love, they write to you, you see the words, it's just, it captivates your heart. What are they going to say to me? These are God's words to us that should captivate our hearts. That's why I had Sariah read Psalm 119 to us, these verses. Because Psalm 119 is one of the beautiful, most beautiful, well-structured Psalms in the whole of Scripture, well-structured pieces of the whole of Scripture. There are, in Psalm 119, there are 22 stanzas, which means this. There's 22 sections in Psalm 119, and those 22 sections have eight verses per section. And each section begins with a title, uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Vet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. It starts with A, B, C, D, E, F, G. All goes through the alphabet. And the reason it has that beautiful ordered structure is to reflect the beauty of what it is talking about. And what is Psalm 119 talking about? It is talking about the law. It is talking about the Torah. It is talking about the Ten Commandments. And the writer is saying, these are beautiful. He says this, do you think of like this when you think of the Ten Commandments? Psalm 119 verse 13, with my lips I declare all the laws of your mouth. In the ways of your testimony, I delight as much as in all riches. When you look at the Ten Commandments, do you delight in them as much as you do in all riches? That's the psalmist. He's captivated by God's word. Verse 32 of Psalm 119, I run in the ways of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments for in them I delight. He delights in the Lord's commandments. Verse 46, listen to this. I will speak of your testimonies before kings, and I shall not be put to shame. 
for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I meditate on your statutes. It's almost like he's praising. I lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I delight in them. We forget the beauty of God's Word. These Ten Commandments, they're beautiful. They're not just a bunch of moral rules. They're beautiful. But the other thing that we do forget is not just their beauty, but we forget their impossibility. And that's actually the key for us as Christians when we're reading the Ten Commandments. We're not to, we're, we're to see them as beautiful, but we're also to see them as impossible. You see, it's wrong for us to look at them as our key way into heaven. Because if you've ever sat down and said, right, I'm going to keep these commandments today, good luck to you. Start even on the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, God, right, today, no other gods. No other gods, okay. Well, I don't have, you know, statues of, of different gods and Buddhas and all this kind of stuff in my house. I'm good. But actually, the gods that are idols in our life, materialism and, and greed and lust and, and different idols in our lives. Is there a day in my life that I do not give false worship to something other than God? It's impossible in one sense to keep that command. Say, right, okay, I can't do that one. Let's, let's go to another one. Do not murder. Well, I haven't killed anyone. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. It's a really good thing. But then Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at someone with hate, you've already committed murder. That's impossible. Because I've done that and you've done that. Okay, you can't do that. So adultery. Okay, let's go to adultery. Look at adultery and say, well, I haven't done that, so we're all good. Then Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. The lust of men, the lust of women, it is adultery. Say, and then, okay, I'll go down to coveting. Well, have you ever desired somebody else, what somebody else has? I have. This law is impossible for the human heart. There is a built-in impossibility in this law in our hearts. And what makes it even more impossible is this. Not only do you have ten commandments, but you know there's more commandments than the ten commandments in the law? There's actually 613 commandments. Now, okay. Right, I can't keep the 10. How about trying to keep the 613? Could any of us here even name the 613? I couldn't. Some of us here can barely stay awake reading the 613, let alone trying to remember them, let alone trying to obey them. And so if I take all of them into account, where do I stand? Impossible. 
And then James says, good old James, in James chapter 2, verse 10, forever keeps the whole law, but fails in just one point, has become guilty of it all. So if you fail on just one point of the law, you're guilty of it all. It's impossible. And then if it's impossible, do you know what we have in our hands? We have a really, really big problem on our hands. Do you know why? Because Jesus said these two realities, or God said these two realities in the old covenant. If you keep my commandments, you get blessing. If you disobey my commandments, you get curse. That means we're in big trouble. Deuteronomy says this, Deuteronomy 11, verse 26 says this. See, I am setting before you today a blessing, a blessing, and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. So where does that leave us? Are you in blessing camp right now or in curse camp? We're cursed. Right now, we stand cursed. But if that's the only thing we remember about the Ten Commandments, we've missed it. We shouldn't forget the Ten Commandments' impossibility. But we also shouldn't forget the Ten Commandments' fulfillment. And Jesus came and he said these wonderful words. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. I have come to fulfill the law's demands for you. This promise of a serpent crusher coming would come in the name of Jesus Christ and he would not only be the serpent crusher, but he would be the law keeper on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ would keep the law on our behalf where we would fail. He would be faithful. And so that all who would trust and believe in him, we get his obedience. That's what happens. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his law obedience is credited and merited to you. He's the law keeper on your behalf. And what that means is also something quite incredible. Not only does his obedience come to us, but our curse goes to him. It's just incredible. Our curse goes to him. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Lord Jesus became a curse for you and me that we might receive blessing. That is good news. There are many names that we call Jesus, isn't there? My Jesus, 
my savior, my comforter, my friend. We call him many things, don't we? Do you know what else we should call Jesus? Jesus, he is my curse. Eric Raymond says this, and there upon that cross, he is cursed by God. He becomes my curse. God treats him as if he has done every despicable, wicked, rebellious, idolatrous, self-promoting thing that I have ever done. Every single thought and word and deed of iniquity is blended together and charged to Christ, and he becomes my curse. Yes, we look at the impossibility of the law, and we should not forget it. But we must also remember the fulfillment of the law. It was fulfilled in Christ. This morning, brothers and sisters, you are not under a curse. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you look to the cross, you are forgiven. It is done. It is finished. All your sins, past, present, and future, nailed to the cross. So then, what does that mean I should do with these Ten Commandments? Here's what it means. I look to the blessing that I have received in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I live my life vertically and horizontally. I live my life loving God and loving my neighbors because I have been blessed when I don't deserve it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this covenant that you made with Israel, with Moses, with your people. We pray thanking you that we have not the old covenant but the new in which you have fulfilled and you have written your law on our hearts. Lord, that we might love, serve, and obey you. Help us, Lord, to turn to you. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. Help us, Lord, to remember you have become a curse for us. In your precious name, amen. I'm gonna stand and sing in response. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Let's sing of this gospel in which we are saved, the one who has become a curse for us. Oh,